0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12. As I mentioned before, after just getting a little bit of life back and working myself out the previous week and just not having a lot of energy Monday through Wednesday and then coming into a four-day drill, I decided to return to an older sermon. When I looked at my records, it's been seven years. Can you believe that? Seven years I have preached it and refreshed it just a little bit. I know. Doesn't it make some of you feel it's that much older, um, but wiser, right? And and uh, so a sermon that I would I would like to hear again. So I thought I thought this would this would be helpful. I want to give you just a little bit of the context of the book of Joshua. There's there's four sections. They actually have a kind of a, a little bit of nice Hebrew parallel. One and four and two and three only have one letter difference. And there's almost there's a little bit of like a an assonance or a pun there if you want to say. And so it's a very nice little structure. There's crossing over the land, taking the land, dividing the land, and then serving the Lord. And they, they kind of break up the book into four sections. And this is right in the middle of the the book. And it's starting this third section after they've crossed over. They've taken the land. They're now dividing the land in, in this section. And I will start reading at verse 7, verse one through six recaptures or recalls what Moses had done, conquering kings on the, the eastern side of the Jordan. as Israel was coming in from the east and then they crossed and then they took these kings. And so we will read it is admittedly an unusual passage, but we will read this passage verses seven through twenty four. You will be transported into a land that is not your own, it is very different culturally. But let us pay attention to God's word. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. From Baal in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises from Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowlands, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev. The land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Gedir, one. The king of Hormah. One. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makadah, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Afek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron, Meron, one. The king of Akshaph, one. The king of Ta'anak, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachniam and Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphtor, one. The king of Goyim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Fathers, we read this passage, which sounds very strange in our, our ears, the, the names and the places and even the, ma- the manner in which it's recounted. We rem- remember that your, your word is rich and varied and it causes us to rise above our own situation and our own culture and to humbly seek you where you have revealed yourself. And so we ask tonight, as we are students of your word, that you would meet us here in this passage written perhaps almost 3,000 years ago, Lord. And so we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you react to this passage? Think, think, you know, pastor, if you, if you had to choose a passage just out of the, the middle of nowhere, well, why would you choose this one? Or, or think about it. Here you are for your morning devotions and you come to Joshua chapter 12 and you say, Lord, give me something for today. And as one commentator says, it does not exactly engulf the reader in a, warp, a glow of devotional warmth. <laughs> right? it's a, you, you might read through this passage like you would uh, for the same reason people climb Mount Everest because it's there. And we're doing it and we're being faithful as we march through scripture. Um, But it's a passage that shows Joshua beginning to divide the land, which is about God's inheritance. It's his gift for his people. And that's important for us today. And it shows us how God's holiness and his goodness work together. it's very fashionable, especially as I talk with soldiers, to hear someone say, well, you know, my, my God is a God of love which is completely true, but the the subtext is he's not a God of wrath or judgment as all, as if, if, you know, you could only be one. But this passage says it's actually the opposite. God is a fearsome God to his enemies and a loving father that cares for his children. Here's the point of the sermon tonight. Fear God so that you can praise him. Fear God so that you can praise Him. God is a loving God who does wonderful things for His people, and if you fear Him, you will experience His gracious care. But if you fight Him, you will experience His justice. So fear God so you can praise Him. Well, what does it mean to fear God, kids? What does it mean to fear God? It's not not that you're you're, you're a cowering fear that you you always you, you you you've seen a dog that's been hit and then you try to reach out to it. It just cringes back not not that but realizing the greatness of God with a respect a reverence as you approach him a submission that leads to obedience and this passage shows us two reasons why you should fear God first of all he is the god who lasts forever and you read these names today and it's, it's actually it's not a name of list of kings but just their cities these, these were men who once had absolute control over their, their lands. Their people's lives were in their hands. Names would have been known all over the land. Joshua doesn't even bother to write their names down. We don't know their names, and if we did, honestly, we really wouldn't care. But, you know, remember soon that anyone could read a list of today's world leaders, and it will be the same thing. Think about Vladimir Putin and how much he is in the news right now, and certainly his leadership is causing uh, much distress and, and death and hardship to the people of Ukraine and don't want to under to downplay that in any way. But how will he be remembered in the history books 50, 100 years from now? A paragraph or two? A footnote? This man who is causing so much turmoil and trouble right now will soon be no more will just barely be remembered. And, and what Joshua shows here, by not even naming these kings, is that time passes and there's only one constant, one king worth remembering. It's important to remember the eternal character of your God. God has never had a beginning. He will have no end. He's not affected by time like you and I are. There's, that's the creator-creature distinction. That's the big difference. We, you're stuck in time. You have to wait. You get impatient. You grow old. Unless Jesus returns soon, you one day will die. None of those applies to God. He is the God who lives forever. That is what makes God so different from anyone else. Should you fear these kings today? I mean, after all, they were, they, were, they were mean, they were vicious, they were powerful people, kids. Should you fear them? Of course not. They're dead. They can't do anything to you. But you serve the God who created everything, who will not die Who you can't, you can't escape his, who he is. And that puts your world in your place, right? There's, we, we are, we are so much today looking forward. We, we don't look to the past very much. And we're looking for that next thing, the next sporting event, next conference, next, next new technology style, next political candidate, whatever it is. Some of them will be good. Some of them will be bad. None of them will last. Just remember that when you see all the hype, when you're tempted to, to get excited to a point. That's beyond wise. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, to so teach us to number our days so that may we, we may get a heart of wisdom. There's only one king, one person worth following, who lasts forever. And that is the one worth fearing and serving. So we fear God because he lives forever. You can't outlive God, can you? But also because this God destroys his enemies. And it's very clear about that. This is the God who destroys his enemy. This this chapter purposely focuses on the kings of this land. And and in the Hebrew, there's an emphasis on the on the kings that the Lord has conquered, even though they're not named. And you see that the king of Jerusalem one comes first. That's the emphasis. And a couple chapters earlier, if you were reading through Joshua, you might remember in chapter 10, this, this picture plays out where where after Jericho and Ai, the armies are routed. And you remember the kings run into the cave and and they they throw some stones over the cave and then they go out and fight, destroy the enemies and rout them. And then they come back and the leaders come and place their necks on the king, their feet on the necks of the kings. They, They put their foot on their necks and then they're killed and they're hung on a tree, which is a sign of a curse to show that they've been cursed by God and removed from the land because the land is holy and God is removing these pagan kings from his land. This shows a clear picture of God who destroys his enemies and all who resist him. Today we would say, isn't that a bit harsh? God, isn't that that overreacting? Why would God do that? Well, first, the Old Testament is clear. The rest of it, that these people were wicked and they deserved God's judgment. God told Abraham that he was going to reserve judgment because the sin of the Amorites had not yet been complete. There was a sense in which they were storing up judgment. But, here you see one of the themes is how you respond to God's rule throughout Joshua. Right before this story is is the story of the Gibeonites. And you remember that this was a people who saw Joshua's winning battles left and right. They were fearsome warriors, but they said, you know, we... We can't fight these people. And so they, they put on some old clothes and got some old bread and some worn out sandals and said, hey, you know, we've, we've come from a long play away, three, four days journey. And and look at all of our bread. And would you be would you be allies with us? And they didn't consult the Lord and they they became allies. And the Lord said, you have to honor that. And it was in perfect faith, but it was a faith. It was people who realized that Israel was on the winning side and they made a sly deal to get protection. Somewhat like Rahab, who, who even more acknowledged that Israel's God was the one who performed all the wonders in Egypt and Bashan. and He was the one. You know, he would already defeated those kings that Moses had beaten on the other side. And he, he's the side you need to be on. And, you know, Rahab even reported this in Joshua 2.9. I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you see, the kings knew what God had done, and they knew that his people were coming into the land, and they had a choice. They could have fled the area. There's, I think, hints here that they could have pled for mercy and accepted the Lord in some sense. Or they could fight. And although they knew God's deeds and they knew his greatness, they decided to band together. The kings from the center, the north, and the south all formed these coalitions, these three impressive words, and they decided to oppose the, the, the creator of the world instead of submit to him. Bruce Waltke, the commentator, Old Testament commentator, compares this to the demons in James 2. They believe in God, but they shudder. They, they had heard of his good deeds, but they couldn't bear to submit to him, and so they fight against him. And so God destroys him because he can't allow his creatures to stand against him. They, these kings banding together and shaking their fists of God is a, is a good as illustration of any as human rebellion. This is sinful humanity resisting God's rightful rule. And God may allow this for a time, but he can't allow it to go on forever. And how does God respond? Remember, we, we read in the call to worship and saying that he he laughs. He says, I will terrify them in his fury because I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And Joshua, acting as God's agent, is victorious and the men placing their Feet on the necks of the king is meant to remind you of God's greater plan, that the seed of the woman is now triumphing over the seed of the serpent, going all the way back to Genesis, looking forward to what Jesus will do when he finally crushes Satan at the cross and the tomb. Today we don't talk about a whole lot as the American church, about God's judgment, him, him destroying his enemies, or even that we were enemies until we placed our faith in Jesus. And if you have not, you are an enemy of God, no matter how, nicely you, how nice you are to your neighbors and how well you live. I, I think some of that might be because of church history and in, in past in Christendom, when, when everyone in a, in a Christian nation was a Christian and we went off to wars in the name of Christ, that, that was a, a gross misapplication of scripture. Um, Jesus, you know, when Peter went to strike the, the, the guard coming to get him, he said, put away the sword. Our, our weapons our spiritual weapons uh, unlike the Israelites we are not to be used as instruments of physical judgment for God in normal situations not certainly as nations going against other nations or, or the church sometimes God uses nations ordains that but not as a church do we organize armies and bang together so but the problem is instead of Correcting that, we just avoid the talk of judgment at all. Instead, there's kind of maybe a, a, what we call a better life theology. And there's, there's a good and a bad version of that. A, a bad version would be, Joe Olstein, your best life now. It's very much centered around, God is here to help you have your best life. And, and he's, he's a moon over here. He's kind of orbiting your life. And he's going to give you some blessing if you just do the right things. And, uh, you know, he wants you to be sincere and love your neighbor. Very much puts you on the center. There is a better version of this. I'm reading a book right now called *The The Men We Need* by Brett Hansen. Uh, and he's he's a Christian though. He said this isn't a theology book; it's it's more of a wisdom book. I haven't read it all, so I can't give a complete I can't I can't give a complete account of it. But it's 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 more of a thing that you you know God has to men, but speaks to everyone. Look, God's made you to be protectors and keepers of the garden. And men, when you sit on the sidelines, when you don't show up. Your passivity isn't not hurting anyone. We need you in the fight. And it's a tragedy, men, that you're not living up to what God's called you to be. And he goes through different areas where he's saying, hey, grow up. And in fact, when you grow up, you're going to find that this is fulfilling because this is what God had planned for you. Right? That's kind of your best life when you follow God's path. Maybe the best version of this theology would be John Piper's don't waste your life. Now, he's very, very much nuanced with judgment and other things. So there's, and there's some valid insights from this idea of, they have better life theology that, that is focusing more on, on you connected to God. Or there's, you could see inferences from scripture where we're all made in the image of God and, and we're fulfilling what God made us to do when we reflect his glory back to him in the world. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Ephesians 4 talks us growing up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. So we're, we're to grow up in Christ and to become like him. Uh, talks about us bearing fruit and being good stewards with our talents, and when we fall short of that, that is a tragedy. Okay, so so there is that other side of the coin which we can talk about, but but let's be clear. The focus in scripture is on God's righteous judgment, not, not on us and how our, we affect the world. The, the focus of our actions when we fall short is not that we, we don't live up to our potential, that we've kind of wronged ourselves in the world, but that we've wronged God and He's rightfully angry with us. That's, Jesus talks about that a lot as, as hell and He talks about hell and judgment. And the time that Jesus does talk about bearing the fruit and, and stewarding talents, the punchline isn't, you've wasted your life. Although it is, it's usually, you know, bring, bring these people in and execute them or burn the trees. It, there's, there's a judge who will destroy you in his righteous wrath. That's, that's, that's a strong emphasis in scripture. And as a church, we must be faithful to that teaching and that truth. I would say today that tactically speaking, as you're being wise in presenting God's truth, you may not often, always lead with God's judgment today. Unfortunately, Satan has blinded the world so much, that, and God's holiness is so strange and alien that if you start with that type of judgment, it could turn people away before they even truly understand what they're rejecting. That is possible. So, so, so an analog was in Japan or China, one of one of the one of the Asian countries. When Western missionaries went in, they started you know, being good Presbyterians. They started talking about justification by faith. Well. Eastern mindset isn't a judicial mindset. It's an honor-shame mindset. And so although those categories are true and beautiful, they just didn't understand them. Like, this Christianity stuff is just just weird. And they were rejecting it with even out understanding. So maybe they started with union with Christ and you were called into God's family. Right? There's an honor-shame community concept. And then from there, they can start to build some of the foundation blocks so that they can understand what justification of faith is. They got there. So so maybe sometimes we don't always lead with the judgment aspect. But without that reality, as God is fierce from God, that we sang about, you're hiding God's character and his glory. If we don't get there and we're not properly warning people about the gospel, it's not just if you don't turn to God, you've wasted your life and you're going to look back and regret it, as true as that is, it is you are going to face an angry God who destroys his enemies and even you will say he is right when it happens. It's sobering, but it's true. And the truth continues to today. Right? it was Jesus who preached, repent for the, and believe in the King is ahead. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so, in our world today, when people say, "I, you know, I am the master of my my faith, the captain of my soul," have to know that, God, you know, sometimes if you're close to them, if you talk to them, say, you know, God looks down at you and He laughs. You stand in danger of his judgment. You know, back then, those kings were stubborn. God had obliterated the world power of Egypt. He cared for his people through the desert. He, he performed the miracles in, in destroying Bashan and then the Jordan River crossing and, and Jericho, this, this powerful walled city. And the rest of the kings say, yeah, yeah, we can take them. Bring it on. It's, it's foolishness. But we have to ask, what, you know, what, what about us? And the, and, and the message of the gospel, even though God demands us to submit and to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you still see the beauty of this grace there, right? The, the great reversal of the gospel, even with the message of that judgment in the background, is instead of hanging us rebel sinners on a tree to be cursed, he sent his son to die and hung as a rebel, an insurrectionist, on a tree, by the Romans. They thought they were putting down a political revolt but to pay for our sins. Right? That's, that's a truly incomprehensible thing. Not that God judges sinners, but he became like us to take our sin. So I ask you tonight, have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you, have you submitted to this God who judges his enemies? Have you said to him, Jesus, you are my Lord, you own me. What you say in my life goes, what you ask me to do, by your grace I will do. What you send my way, I will receive without complaint. That is the only way to escape the coming judgment. Hear these words of Jesus from Matthew 10, sobering. Verse 26, he has, says, So have no fear of them, these are persecutors, people who will pass away. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that, is, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear, whispered, proclaim the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The God who lives forever and destroys his enemies. Place your faith in the one who conquered death on the cursed tree. So that's the call of the gospel. Fear God, and submit to his rule, but there's more so that you can praise him. Fear God, yes, so that you can praise him. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then God's judgment of you is turned into a blessing. And you can see that here if you understand the theology of the land. This passage is a sign of God's judgment, what he does to his enemies, but also it's a praise song for his people. Not only did God destroy his enemies, but at the same time, he's using his judgment to bless his people as he's clearing out and removing the land and preparing it for his people. He's going back and fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham 400 years ago, that when he walked in the land of Canaan, it would belong to him and his people and that they'd be a great nation. And so he's doing it step by step. And each king that he removes is a testimony. It's it's a proof of God's goodness to his people. Each king then that's defeated becomes part of a praise song turn with me to psalm 135 i want to read some excer- excerpts from psalm 135 and psalm 136 if you have your bibles with me if you have the few bibles will be the second part of psalm 135 which is 520 so starting starting from the first four verses which is 519 So, Psalm 135, verses 1 through 4, and then 8 through 12. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel, as his own possession. Possession there goes with the land, God living with them. Going to verse 8. God, he it was who was struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Then move over to Psalm 136, starting at verse 17. This is the psalm that goes on and on with his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for their steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. And go back to Joshua. But what you see here is Israel's weaving God's salvation, his physical deliverance into this prayer, a song, a prayer of praise to God. The Psalms, that's what it is. And the Psalms teach us how to pray. What you see here from the Psalms is be specific when you praise God. You count kings with Israel. And we as adults tend to go from the particulars and make general statements. Lord, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my food. That can be very bland. Kids can actually teach us something there. You know, they they go to pray for their meals, and I say, God, thank you for mommy, daddy, the chicken, the salt, the juice, the butter. and You know, they list things out. And you might think that's childish, but... Scripture takes a childlike delight in repeating things over and over again. You even you even hear that in the Psalms. Psalm 30, 135 and one thirty six say a lot of the same things. It doesn't get old. Instead, they, they mention very specific things. Why couldn't you have just said, Praise God, because in Joshua twelve, Israel conquered the kings in the east and the west? Done. You know, Joshua, you write in a scroll that'd be much more economic. No. Each king is a sign of the Lord's goodness. And one day we will spend eternity marveling at the individual facets of the Lord's provision for us. These little details. And so, kids, count your blessings. Name them one by one, as the song says. Count your blessings and see what God has done. Name them. Give him, give him praise for them. Get specific. Think about the ways you could, you could bless God for your salvation. And we, we say, okay, Christ saved me. and. That's true, and it's wonderful, but but again, that's, that's so general that it might lose its punch, but you can stop and say, well, I, I've been chosen. I've been called. I've been adopted. I've been justified. And you can just zero in on one of those and thank God for what that is and what it means in your life. You can thank God for the details of your salvation, that you had parents or friends who shared with you the gospel, or for me, that when I was a very young boy, I was sick on Friday night, and instead of going out to whatever program we were going to do that night, I stayed home and my parents shared the wordless book with me and for that first time I had a first conscious need of my uh, my sin and understanding that I needed a savior. You can praise and thank God for the details that go beyond your salvation. When you're going through a difficult time you know how it freeing it is to stop and categorize God's goodness and his faithfulness. And when you look at this list in Joshua 12, it can be repetitive. It can seem repetitive because it's not your life. You don't know these details. There's someone you're not connected to. But when you start praising the Lord for your things and listing it, it becomes much more exciting. You know, today, this weekend, there were several times where I just said, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I can walk in the sun and enjoy it today. Lord, I'm grateful that I'm tired and alive. And I'm grateful that I'm alive enough to be tired and stressed. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you praise for that right now. I didn't know where I was, would be five months ago. And here I am. You know, this is more than just the power of positive thinking, you know, where you think happy thoughts, that influences the, your, your disposition. And you know, scientific research has shown that. People, who are, people always would tell me, I'd say, you know, I've got thousands of people praying for me. And the nurses would say, well, you know, research has shown that if you're positive, that will help you. And it really will. It's like, well, that's, that's true. But this is more than that, isn't it? This, this is not just dwelling on, you know, th- those, that, that type of, okay, well, you know, at least this didn't happen to me. No, counting kings is, is placing your trust in the great God who sent his son to die in your place to make you his own. That's what it comes down to. This true God who has met his justice and blesses you with his love. And that's far deeper than just saying, well, at least I didn't experience this. Romans 3, or Romans eight thirty two. He who not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also graciously give us all things? When you're counting kings, you realize what God is doing for you. And then you can praise him. You enjoy him. You revel in these things. So this is an unusual passage, but it does show us our God who reigns and who reigns uncontested over this world. And by the death of Jesus Christ turns judgment into blessing for you. And so, by God's grace, go out this week and start counting kings. Please pray with me. Father, this passage is different. It, is, it may be difficult, it may be strange, but it reminds us that you are in the center of this universe. And when we submit to that and when we understand that, we see your love and your goodness. I thank you that We have reached out and accepted your mercy. I pray for anyone who is either here today or listening who hasn't done that, that they would bow the knee to Jesus and and find not only fulfillment in life, but freedom from sin and pardon from your judgment, Lord. We cheapen the gospel when it's just our best life now, and we don't realize that we are redeemed and rescued sinners that have been snatched from the furnace of just judgment. And so we praise you as our King, who's given us so many good things, and most of all, our Savior Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.